The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Friday, October the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's the day after the new agreement on Brexit between the UK and the EU, and it's the day before the agreement is put before the House of Commons in Westminster for what all observers agree is going to be an incredibly tight vote. I'll be joined a little bit later by Fintan O'Toole to discuss what the deal means for Ireland, for the UK, and for Northern Ireland. But first, I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, there's a lot of feverish speculation about the numbers and how they might fall in the House of Commons vote um, tomorrow. What's your read on it? Well, it's a kind of a complicated balancing act. If you look at uh, at the, the picture of what he's got to do, he has to get about 320 votes. That's assuming no abstentions or that nobody stays at home or whatever. And there are 285 uh, conservative uh, MPs. And the, and the groups that he's looking at that he has to get support from, one is the 21 uh, conservatives who no longer have the whip, who fell out with him over uh, the issue of a no-deal Brexit. And they lost the whip uh, over you know, in the last uh, couple of months. And he has to try to get them on board, or most of them. And then there's the 28 uh, conservative Brexiteers who voted against Theresa May's deal on uh, the third occasion, when he, in fact, and Jacob Rees-Mogg voted in favour of it. And he needs to get nearly all of them. And then then uh, the other pool of votes really is, uh, or potential votes, is 19 Labour MPs who have indicated that they would like to have a, a Brexit deal. And if a, a Brexit deal came that they could vote for it, then they would like to vote for it. And then there's also a few independents who are former Labour MPs who might be up for grabs as well. Uh, and the problem that he's got really is that uh, the the inducements that he's making to one group to get them uh, across the line, that can alienate uh, a different group. So, for example, the Brexiteers, most of them are likely to vote in favour of the deal. About half of them have more or less said so in public that they're going to do so. But there's, uh, so then the question is, how low can you get the holdouts? And one of the things that, uh, that uh, Boris Johnson's allies have been saying to them is that, look, once we get to the, tra- the end of the transition period, if we haven't got a free trade agreement or if the negotiations aren't going well towards a free trade agreement, then we'll just leave. 
uh, you know, we, uh, we'll just be gone. The transition period will end at the end of next year. And then if there is no free trade agreement, then we'll just go on a no deal WTO rules basis. And that reassures some of them that, uh, you know, he's actually still ready for a completely clean Brexit, as they would call it. The problem with that, of course, is that that alienates uh, two other groups. And so, for example, the uh, conservative rebels, the 21 without the whip, are people like Philip Hammond, former chancellor, who is concerned about the impact of this deal on the British economy. And the and I think Philip Hammond probably will vote for it. But they had thought that they would probably get at least 15 of these uh, 21, maybe 17, maybe 18. And now it looks as if uh, those numbers are softening a bit because of some concerns. There's been some information overnight about the likely economic impact of the deal, although the government hasn't produced its assessment. But uh, so those votes are not quite certain. I mean, some of them, like Dominic Grieve, for example, is likely to vote against the deal in any case, because essentially he wants a second referendum and he wants to reverse Brexit. And he's also going to stand as an independent uh, against the Conservative Party. He's already essentially cut his ties with the Conservative Party. Then when you look at the Labour benches, what they need really is reassurance about things like employment rights. And so written into the revised political declaration is this commitment to maintaining uh, standards and employment and social rights. But uh, they complain that that's in the non-binding part of the text. And so they can't necessarily trust him to do anything about it. Now, what you may get is a pledge uh, or some kind of an amendment even promising to bring in domestic legislation to take care of that. But then you've got a few sort of variables. So, for example, the figure of Kate Hoey, Labour MP for Vauxhall, who has consistently voted against Theresa May's deal. Uh, but she's also consistently voted with the DUP. So she is uh, somebody, she's been tweeting quite a lot in the last uh, 24 hours. She hasn't actually uh, said yet how she's going to vote, but she has been tweeting kind of conflicting things. Sometimes she's tweeting stuff that the DUP are tweeting, which is condemning the deal. Then at other times, she seems to be tweeting or retweeting stuff that's in support of it. So, so she's quite difficult to read. And then among those uh, hardline Brexiteers, there's a group that the DUP are working on. Uh, Nigel Dodds, the leader of the DUP in the, uh, the House of Commons, has uh, drafted in Ian Paisley and Sammy Wilson, the two uh, true uh, Brexiteers in the, among the, the uh, 10 DUP MPs. And they've been working on these uh, kind of Brexiteers that they've been so close to for a number of years, trying to bring them over. And so there would be figures like, for example, if you think of a, a conservative backbencher, Richard Drax, he voted against Mrs. May's deal twice, but then he voted for it on the third occasion. And after that, he used a point of order in the House of Commons to apologise to the DUP for doing doing so. Now, will he be able to vote for a deal that they have made clear is, as far as they're concerned, a betrayal of the union? So this is where, uh, you know, the numbers uh, you know, can shift as the day goes on. And so some, uh, you know, and some, there are a lot of waivers and the ERG is going to meet tomorrow morning and they say that they will then kind of announce their position, but they're not likely to vote as a group in any case, because some of them have already said they're going to support the deal. And it's pretty clear at least one or two of them won't. That's a wonderfully detailed picture you you paint of complexity, confusion, and 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 intrigue. I'm surprised by a couple of those those points there, Dennis, because I, in my naivety, thought that the vast majority of the 21 Conservative MPs who lost their their 
uh, lost the party whip when they voted against Johnson would vote for this deal because the vast majority of them had voted for Theresa May's, Theresa May's deal. Does this in a way go to back up some of the arguments against those people or the criticisms of those people from inside uh, the Conservative Party that they were just Remainers all along? Yeah, there's some of that. I think there's also personal animosity comes into some of these things. But also then I think that, uh, you know, I think there is, a, there is a difference between Theresa May's deal and this deal when you look at it from the economic point of view. Because what Theresa May's deal was talking about was a very closely integrated economic relationship between Britain and the European Union, including frictionless trade or as close to frictionless trade so that you would have, uh, you know, uh, essentially they would be following EU regulations to a great extent. And then uh, what Boris Johnson is speaking about and uh, what's written into this new declaration is a much more independent one. And so it's really talking about, you know, apart from Northern Ireland, that really what his vision is, is for a very hard break economically with uh, the rest of the European Union. And it's been made clear to him in Brussels this week that if he's looking for a free trade agreement that has zero tariffs and zero quotas, then he's going to have to agree to all of these level playing field provisions, as they're called, about, say, state aid rules and competition rules that he doesn't really want to sign up to. And so, uh, so I think you could make an argument if you were a conservative who voted for Theresa May's deal but didn't like this one, that actually you're doing it on economic grounds rather than just because you actually don't uh, want Brexit to happen at all. So set against that overall landscape, if if we were just for a moment to make the assumption that despite the efforts of, of Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley, most of the ERG Spartans still say, still still vote yes uh, tomorrow. The biggest variable, is it fair to say, is those Labour MPs, because I see all kinds of numbers, everything from four or five up, up until 20. There was a Labour uh, staunch Brexiteer, Labour backbencher on RT Radio this morning. He was saying the number of Labour MPs who would vote for this had been grossly underestimated in the media. Is that the, the big unknown? Yeah, it is the big unknown. And, because, and and part of it is that although uh, the Labour whipping operation is unlikely to be quite as drastic as the Conservative one, I mean, I think we can expect uh, Boris Johnson's whips to tell any of these ERG people that if they vote against the deal, that they will lose the whip and they will not be allowed to stand as Conservative candidates in the next election. I don't think Labour is going to tell its people anything like that. And there is some suspicion among Remainers, for example, that would quite suit uh, Jeremy Corbyn's purposes to have Brexit out of the way but to have clean hands so that actually the election whenever it comes would not be fought on Brexit and it would be fought on regular normal domestic issues and so there's uh, there's some suspicion that they might turn a blind eye but there are other pressures and so there are pressures, for example, from the constituency parties. And in many of the, for many of these people, the constituency party is dominated by people who favour Remain and also people who uh, really will not forgive them for walking across the floor to help Boris Johnson to a famous victory. Now, what some Conservative MPs are saying to, uh, you know, uh, potentially uh, recruitable Labour MPs is that actually if this deal goes down, 
that Boris Johnson will fight some kind of people versus parliament election and that that then would put them in a difficult position in their seats where, you know, where, where most people voted to leave the European Union. And so that uh, really they would be much safer if actually this deal happened. Everybody would kind of forget about Brexit. And whenever the election comes, they'll, you know, uh, people will go back to their normal tribal loyalties. And so those people are wrestling with all of these uh, you know, competing forces and different kinds of pressures on them. And that's part of what makes it difficult. I think what some of them need is a bit of cover. So if, for example, there was something juicy on uh, workers' rights, that would help. What has also helped or could help is what Leo Varadkar said in Brussels today and Emmanuel Macron as well. Macron said that he didn't think there ought to be an extension any more extensions uh, to Britain's membership of the European Union. And Leo Varadkar said uh, at his press conference that MPs voting tomorrow at, in the House of Commons shouldn't assume, they would be mistaken to assume that there was the necessary unanimity at the, in the European Council to agree an extension. Now, both of those are things which could potentially, although they're not actually decisions, of course, and uh, you know, and, and who knows what the European Council will do if it's asked for an extension. But at least if you needed a bit of cover, you might be able to say, look, I, it, it's quite clear that if we don't pass this uh, deal, then we're going to crash out with no deal because the Europeans won't let us stay in. Although Emmanuel Macron did say something similar before one of the previous deadlines, I, um, I think earlier this year, and it didn't actually turn out in the end. And the noises from Angela, coming from Angela Merkel today were were rather different. But it does look, doesn't it, as if both Leo Varadkar and Emmanuel Macron are doing that sort of thing, which, you know, um, dodgy characters, you know, do outside shops and say, you know, you wouldn't want your window broken, would you? So maybe you might want to give me a couple of quid. Exactly. That's right. Yes, exactly. I myself abhor violence with the gentleman that employs me, unfortunately. (laughs) You know, and, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, so, yes. So I think they're certainly trying to help. And, uh, you know, and of course, it is really true, actually, that, you know, you do need the unanimous support of all 27 uh, leaders to agree an extension. So if one of them says no, then it's not going to happen. That's not usually the way these things work, but still, it's, it's possible. Um, for the remainers in Parliament, and as we know, there are plenty of them, what's the best strategy in all this, do you think? I think probably the best strategy is to say that, uh, you, know, you know, first of all, they're going to have plenty of amendments. So one of the uh, amendments is going to say that no matter what happens uh, tomorrow, that uh, that uh, Boris Johnson will still have to seek an extension so that even if his bill passes, that it has to seek an extension because then there are other opportunities further along in the enabling legislation where they, he might be tri- tripped up, say, for example, with an amendment called for a confirmatory referendum, saying this thing can't come into effect before you have a referendum confirming it. And so uh, so I think that's probably the best way to play it. But also, of course, just to put an awful lot of pressure on uh, the people uh, you know, who are um, you know, in their party or, or the people who are susceptible to their pressures. And just in relation, and finally, Dennis, if you wouldn't mind, it, to, to what you were just describing there, this is a fairly complicated and technical parliamentary process, which doesn't come to an end with a, with a vote tomorrow. And there have been some noises from some quarters, I think, including the DUP, a suggestion that the other members measures which, which will need to be passed pretty quickly if, if they're to meet the October 31st deadline or pretty quickly even if they go beyond it, that each one could be an equally tight vote with the possibility of failing and just spreading chaos on you. That's true. And actually, I think, you know, I mean, I think that probably the, uh, you know, any of those rebels who uh, really take the step to, uh, to go across the floor tomorrow, 
that you are to do whatever it is they do tomorrow if it's a big step. They're probably likely to follow through in the rest of the uh, the enabling legislation. I think a bigger potential problem is amendments. So if amendments are attached, which actually uh, you know, have the potential to wreck things, uh, that you know that those might conceivably get some support. And so, I mean, I think what Boris Johnson will try to do is to get this through as quickly as possible. So what they're really banking on is momentum. And so the deal agreed yesterday, lots of pressure today, this voting tomorrow, and then try to move all of this stuff through as quickly as possible and sit at weekends if necessary and just get it done before anybody has, has time to breathe or think about it or to get their balance back. But I think if you're looking at this vote tomorrow, it really is impossible for anybody, no matter who they are, to say uh, exactly how it will go. And I think it's very possible that it really will be down to a question of one or two votes in the end. We'll be glued to it. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. Thank you. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. Fintan O'Toole, when uh, Boris Johnson was in Dublin just a couple of weeks ago, he said that a failure for both sides to agree a deal on Brexit would be a, a failure of state of statecraft. So is this now a triumph of statecraft? Well, it is, but it's primarily a triumph of Irish statecraft. I mean, you know, uh, when Johnson said, of course, he said it would be a failure of statecraft on, on all our parts, which was pretty much kind of passing the book, you know, um, uh, uh, what has happened, and, and I think you know the Irish Times gives excellent descriptions of it today. Um, you know, is is essentially that uh, Irish diplomats and 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 then Irish politicians came up with a solution uh, and effectively offered it to Johnson, and Johnson seized on it as as a way out of his of his dilemma. Um, I can't think of any parallel in. You know Anglo-Irish relations throughout the entire, you know, all the many centuries of it. You know where where um, Irish diplomacy really uh, has been able to potentially shape British destiny in the same way. Well, that's that's that, that's extremely interesting because to be honest, I didn't quite think of it that way. I suppose because I thought perhaps naively that it takes two to tango, and I, I've perhaps been a bit over focused on what was happening on the British side, and perhaps that it was a little less passive than than you're indicating there. You know, Dominic, Dominic Cummings and his famous decision tree. Do you think that it had any role in this? Do you think that there was at all a roadmap on the Johnson government side that certain actions would take place as a consequence of certain things not happening or happening in this lead up to this kind of, I suppose, the point of the summit this week? Um, I I think, you know, it, it, I think it's been pretty clear, hasn't it, been the last few weeks that the coming strategy was really running out of road Um you know, it, it it was all based on the kind of classic confrontational model. You know, on on the belief that if we just shout louder and make more and more hysterical demands, uh, that we will effectively get what we want. And if we create chaos, we prorogue parliament, we do all these kind of extraordinary things, um, that we will have to be appeased. And that ran out of road, I think, in a lot of different ways. But but 
you could kind of see it. I think there was a very interesting moment, which maybe didn't get a huge amount of attention um, just uh, about 10 days ago, I think it was now, when um, Johnson told the so-called One Nation Tories, sorry, what's left of them, you know, the, the sort of moderate Tories, uh, he gave them a commitment that no deal would not be in the Tory manifesto for the election. Now, that was a huge climb down from the entire coming strategy, right? So, so you know, the, the whole coming strategy was uh, threaten no deal. If Parliament stops us, fantastic, even better. We, you know, we, we run to the country then on a no deal um, uh, platform that neutralizes Farage and it sort of has a very simple message for the election. You know, it's going to be run on the same basis as the, the Brexit referendum campaign in the first place. Now, Johnson giving the commitment to the um, the moderatories that he wasn't going to do that, I think was a moment when you begin you began to realize that they were beginning to realize that this is not working, right? This is over, <laughs> you know, that he has been boxed in. Um, and I genuinely think they were flailing. I, I, I don't think there's any indication that, I mean, they, they, it was clear to them what they couldn't do, but I don't think at that point they knew how to get a deal. Uh, and this is where I think Irish diplomacy, you know, played an extraordinary role in that it was clearly Ireland who stepped in. And perhaps, presumably, had been thinking about this for quite a long time, you know, keeping the strategy uh, quiet, but at the right moments coming in and saying, look, um, there's two things we can do for you. Um, we can get you some kind of mechanism of consent. It's not going to be a veto for the DUP, but we can work on that. We can we can do something on that. Uh, and all you have to do then, uh, and we will we will you know put this forward to the European Union is um, go back to the Northern Ireland only backstop um, with a bit of extra language on it. It, it. it does seem pretty clear that that strategy came from Ireland, um, and. And I think, you know, for, for Irish diplomats to have managed this, right, so both kind of keep the European Union on side, you know, keep them very well informed, make it clear that they weren't going on a solo run, all of that strategy, which was really crucial, but also to open up enough space to be able to say, Johnson, look, this is your way out. Um, now, of course, it, it required Johnson to shaft the DUP. Um, but I don't think, frankly, it was a huge leap of the imagination to um, to imagine Johnson shafting anybody, right? So, you know, that 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 was the big stumbling block. Um, but but we know enough about Johnson to know that uh, he's he's perfectly capable of doing that. And and yet we find ourselves, and perhaps this is also part of the uh, the uh, strategic thinking on the on the Irish side of the equation. We now find ourselves in a situation where a lot of commentators have suggested that no matter what happens tomorrow at Westminster, no matter whether this deal is passed or if it fails to pass, and we then move to a general election in fairly short order, in which Boris Johnson will now be brandishing this deal in one hand and saying, "Vote for me, so I can deliver this, and we can move on." Either way, it's a win-win for Johnson. Well, um, so so uh, if he gets it through, undoubtedly it's a win for Johnson. Right, it, it gets him out of the hole that he had dug for himself, um, and and it does allow him to go into an election saying, "I'm the guy who delivered Brexit." Um, the I'm not sure about the either way though. I think if he loses the vote, surely if you think it through, um, you know, he's obviously he's, there will be an election very quickly and he's going to try and go on, you know, I was, I'm the guy who tried to deliver Brexit and they stopped me. But his problem is that it, it keeps Farage alive, right? So 
there is now a concrete deal. It's it's different from running on no deal, right? Running on no deal is running on fantasy. You know, it's 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 a wonderful blunt slogan. It doesn't have content, right? It's just it's 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 not all these horrible things that are going to happen to you. It's the clean break. You know, that's that idea has a kind of powerful simplicity to it. The problem of running on an act, if he has to run on an actual deal, it still allows it allows Labour to say, well, hold on a minute, look, look at this political declaration, look at what he's trying to do, look at, you know, the potential undermining of labor standards, of environmental standards, all that kind of stuff. So there's something concrete there for Labour to say. But also there's something concrete for Farage to say, you know, you know, Farage doesn't need too much excuse, but if Brexit is delivered by August, uh, by October 31st, what happens to the Brexit party, right? It's it's gone, right? It, it doesn't matter how much they complain about it. They can't run against it because it's done. But if it's still there, if it's still open and it's a concrete deal on the table, I think Farage can still run. And if Farage can still run, Farage can take 10% of the vote. And and th- that then, you know, makes Johnson's strategy of getting his majority, I think, all the more difficult. I think, though, that it might be the case, and it's too early, we haven't seen any opinion polls yet in the UK on what, what people think of this deal. I mean, the reality is, as, as we know, that the main variation, as far as the average UK voter is going to be on this from Theresa May's deal, uh, pertains to Northern Ireland. And we also know from plenty of opinion polls that that's not their most important consideration, in fact, far from it. And so that therefore, the deal on the table would be if not perfect, attractive enough for the get Brexit done contingent. I think I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the, I, I think there's the, the, there's a kind of snap opinion poll I think just out uh, from YouGov, which shows like v- very strong public support for getting the deal done. You know, I think about forty four percent of people want to get the deal done. Um, probably something like tw- I think twenty twenty six percent say no, don't 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 do this deal. So, so yes, from that point of view, um, the calculation is if if the deal is done, it satisfies that sort of broad swathes of people and it does allow him to claim this great achievement i'm i'm the guy who got brexit done right so that 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 does work however if he doesn't get it done if it's still dragging on and he goes into an election but it's still open i think some of that is undercut you know the appeal for a lot of those people so you've you've got the sort of convinced brexiteers for whom you know brexit itself is the holy grail and that's that's fine but the key constituency is the sort of the other 10 to 20 percent of people who say just get the bloody thing done i want it over but if it's not over what farage can do then is farage can come in and say uh, he's going back he's going to go back into negotiations with them even if he gets this deal through parliament he's going to go back in and and negotiate and farage you know because it's complete nonsense but farage has has spun this idea that no deal is the only pure brexit so any deal you know, can be presented to a part of that sort of hard Brexit constituency as a compromise. Um, and, you know, so that, that, that's, I think, where some of the difficulty for Johnson lies. The other thing is we know from political history electorates are funny. Like, they don't thank you for what you've done. You know? <laughs> like, when you come to a general election, they're just like, what's next? Like, what, what, what are you going to do for us now? And... So, yes, obviously there will be some kind of backwash from getting Brexit done if he does it. But remember, this is this is Britain, the country that 
threw Winston Churchill out immediately after the Second World War. You know, <laughs> like, you know, thanks, Winston. You were a fantastic wartime leader. We all love you, you know, but we're not electing you. So I, I just don't think you can be absolutely certain that this narrative, you know, of Johnson riding to a massive overall majority mm. on the basis of having done Brexit uh, is, is is going to play itself out. No, I know. I think that's very true. Although it should be said that Jeremy Corbyn is no Clement Attlee and well, he had well, been in government for yes. five years before <laughs> and all that kind of... I want to move on, if I may, yeah. just briefly to, to the situation in Northern Ireland, because obviously all this entire negotiation and debate essentially centred around Northern Ireland. What do you think of the analysis that the DUP made at fatal strategic error when they agreed to uh, let regulatory checks be put into the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Britain three weeks ago, that that opened the door for everything that followed? I, you know, I, I remember reading it when, you know, when that, that proposal came out, we saw it first, and I, 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 I was really flummoxed. I just could not understand it. You know, I couldn't see why the DUP had signed up to a regulatory border, you know, and was then saying, but it, it's okay because we're we're still in the customs union. And, and I still don't understand, frankly, I, I don't know what they were thinking because they, they conceded precisely on the big principle and then didn't solve the problem. You know, so they, they made their enormous concession and, and, and yet the precise problem was, was still there. I mean, it actually did nothing to solve the border question. So, so it, it, it was just inexplicable, I think. Um, and it showed, I think, their, their, their really poor grasp of strategic thinking. Tactically, they've been brilliant. You know, tactically, they will, you know, obfuscate and they will, they will harangue and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll wait to the last moments and get something out of it. They're, you know, they're very good at sort of doing that stuff. But strategically, I think, Brexit has, in general, has has shown them to be just uh, strategically inept. It strikes me about all this that one of the things when we look back at this historically in a, in a few years' time, it may be seen that, that what the DUP are claiming this week, one element of it may be true, which is that this marks a very important turning point in the history of post-Belfast Agreement Northern Ireland, that the dispensation which was put in place at the Good Friday Agreement where checks and balances and safeguards were put in place to, uh, that both... Both communities had a veto, essentially, or had to, had to reach consensus on certain issues. That that's been there now for 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 more than two decades. It had been running into the sand for the last few years for for various reasons, and now with this move to majoritarianism, which of course the DUP was in favour of for for many yes. many years, we we perhaps see, start seeing the outlines of a of a new Northern Ireland. It's been said to me that one of the factors which people haven't been uh, looking at closely enough in the changes that are going on in Northern Ireland. Ireland, is the growth in the number of people who are neither voting for nationalist or Absolutely. unionist parties. And so now there's a new kind of majoritarianism which will require capturing the centre in, in order to hold political power. I think I think that puts it extremely well. And I think you're absolutely right about it. You know, um, like, I think what we've seen this week is huge. You know, it's, it's, it's seismic in terms of the future of the island of Ireland and the future the relationships between Ireland and Britain. You know, there's no way back, even if this deal does not go through. The fact that a British prime minister and a right-wing British prime minister, Tory British prime minister, has signed up to a process that will inevitably lead to, you know, greater and greater distancing of Northern Ireland from Great Britain is is just astonishing, you know, and... and um, so, yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And then the implications for that, which we're already seeing working out in exactly the way you've said, which is that 
in in this new circumstance, the um, sectarian mechanisms, which and let's call them what they are, but they are sectarian mechanisms which were built into the Belfast Agreement, this sort of nice kind of cross-community idea. But it's basically saying there are two blocks. There's a Catholic block and a Protestant block. And, you know, they, they have to have some sort of mechanism of joint consent. That is is no longer fit for purpose. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it was always hugely problematic because it always denied the fact that even in 1998, there were not two traditions, right? There were there were always three traditions in Northern Ireland. There was there was the, 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 the two tribes and the none of the above. Uh, and exactly, as you say, the none of the above has grown and grown. Um, and you cannot go back to saying, you know, that there are these sectarian vetoes on either side. You know, this it it radically disenfranchises. Um, you know what's what's increasingly a third part of the population of 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 um, the the entire polity. You know, it's 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 not just population, but it's part of the way in which Northern Ireland exists right now. And Brexit, I think, has has animated that third force. You know, to a, to a much greater extent. Um, and so. There's no question but that um, in the fallout from all of this, the Belfast Agreement is going to have to be renegotiated. Its internal architecture hasn't been working well, very obviously. We don't have an assembly. But also those the the, the, the assumptions underlying that in, internal architecture, which is that there's just two two traditions and you have to have parity of esteem between them, th- that has to be revisited. It's, it's, it, it just doesn't match the reality anymore. Mm. Finally, Finton, uh, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast, both in the UK and in Ireland, who will have held out a hope up until now that this might not happen, that the, the United Kingdom would change its mind, there'd be a second referendum or some other electoral event, Article 50 would be withdrawn and the United Kingdom would not leave uh, the European Union. Is it time for us to put those dreams aside? I think it may well be. You know, uh, it's a very bittersweet um, few days, isn't it? Because uh, on the one side, it's, you know, from an Irish point of view, it's sweet. Uh, You know, I I think no matter how you look at this, this is an extraordinary achievement for the Irish state. Um, And it, if it goes through, it it really does lift that terrible cloud of this threat of the return of this border. Uh, So it's, you know, it's it's a really wonderful moment. But the price of it, of course, is uh, going to be paid by our friends in Britain. You know that 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 it it you know what really hasn't come across because there's been so much focus on the backstop or now the front stop as it is um, that you know people haven't maybe realised that the the cost of this is that it allows Johnson to do a much more extreme hard Brexit, bordering on a no deal Brexit. I mean, so 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 what this kind of lays lays the seeds for. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get your head around, but Johnson has sold out the DUP, is going to pay all the money, uh, and he's going to hang around for, for uh, you know, another two years or whatever, and then potentially just do a no-deal Brexit, you know, because that, that's what's there. I mean, if, they, if he doesn't get his trade deal um, in in the terms that he wants, you know, he's, he's made it pretty clear that they'll just walk away at that point. So this could be potentially awful for Britain. Um, and we in Ireland can't insulate ourselves from that, right? So, so even though I think the state's done a fantastic job of damage limitation insofar as it can, those longer term uh, costs that are going to be paid by by Britain are also, you know, economic costs that are going to be paid paid by Ireland as well. And I think, you know, there may be still a slim hope um, that if Johnson's deal is defeated on uh, Saturday or, you know, it could even, who knows, it could go on, be pushed into next week at some point. We don't really know. But if, if, if it doesn't go through and you go to an election, it's 
still not impossible uh, that you could have a Remainer majority in Parliament. You know, we, we don't know this. It's 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 still very much up in the air. Uh, and if there is one, it's it's still you know it's it's only option really is to go for the second referendum. So I don't think it's impossible uh, that you could end up with a second referendum and no Brexit. I think the chances of it have, have hugely diminished over the course of the week. On Monday, if we'd been talking about this, you know, we probably would have said, actually, the chances of second re- referendum are now looking reasonably good. And now they look pretty bleak. Oh, that's a reasonable cautionary note for whatever might happen in the future. Fintan, thanks for yeah. joining us today. Thanks a lot. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to Finton and to Dennis for joining us. Thanks also to Declan Conlon, our producer. Uh, remember that you can subscribe to us on all the usual places. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.